Blog Talk Radio. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics, this is the Bellator Christie podcast where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Often many Christians avoid the Old Testament due to its complexity, and uh, oftentimes it seems that uh, controversy has stemmed from the book of Genesis perhaps more than any other book of the Old Testament. However, both the book of Genesis and the Old Testament hold great value for the believer in Christ. Today we are joined by Dr. Chet Roden. Dr. Roden completed his Ph.D. in Old Testament Studies and his Master of Divinity at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, his uh, Bachelor of Arts from Baptist College of Florida. He serves as the Chair of Biblical Studies at Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia, where he also serves as Professor of Old Testament Studies and Beginning Hebrew. During his summers, he goes on archaeological digs in Israel, serves as pastor, uh, plays a mean banjo with his bluegrass band, and is a die-hard Alabama fan. He recently wrote a book called 30 Days to Genesis, a devotional commentary, so it's our honor and privilege to welcome with us Dr. Chet Roden. Dr. Roden, thank you for joining us today. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having me. I appreciate that, and I appreciate all those kind words you just said. Well, I'm just amazed how you do everything that you do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, those are just different hobbies and different passions I have, and uh, I guess you could say I'm a a generalist. I just enjoy a lot of different things. Well, hey, there's nothing wrong with that. If you would, uh, please tell us about your salvation experience, as we normally, when we welcome guests on the podcast, we always want to hear about a person's testimony. So if you would, uh, would you, uh, if you would tell us about how you came to know the Lord. Sure, Brian. I am, um, I'm a country boy from uh, northeast Alabama. I grew up uh, near a town called Boaz, Alabama, which is in, uh, in the the southern portion, uh, mid-southern portion of uh, a place called Sand Mountain, that uh, plateau that runs from uh, near Chattanooga to near Birmingham, and Boaz is up in the heart of that, uh, and it's a very salt-of-the-earth kind of people there, a very uh, Christian base up there. Uh, I grew up in church, my my mom and uh, 
her family were very religious people. And so I grew up in church and uh, grew up, she sang and was in the music. So I've been in music. That's how I got in music and playing music was uh, through my family origins. But we, uh, we grew up in church and uh, we had a, went to a Baptist church there in a little community called Whitesboro, which is about 10 miles or so from Boaz. And uh, just country folks. We live right on the edge of the mountain uh, back out in the country. And uh, the, the thing about those kind of folks are they, they really believe in the Lord and they trust the Lord a lot and all they do. So uh, I grew up in church. And um, when I was 11 years old, I was in a, a church revival. We had, um, and back in those days, uh, we went in the mornings and then we went at night. And so it was one of those times. And so I was 11 years old. And uh, one night we were at Revival, and uh, the preacher preached, and I really don't know what he preached on. Uh, I think that's probably um, irrelevant to my story, but uh, he gave an invitation. Uh, uh, they called them altar calls back in that day. And so he gave an invitation after he preached, and I really felt God, felt like God was uh, drawing me to him. So I went to the altar, and uh, I prayed for the Lord to help me and forgive me my sins and cleanse me. And uh, he did. And so from that moment on, I was saved. And um, I, like I said, I was 11 years old. And so I've been in church, was in church. and uh, But that's when I really understood that I needed the Lord in my life. And uh, when I got saved, at 11. Amen. Well, in your newest work, you, uh, you, you talk about the book of Genesis. The, it's a devotional commentary on the book of Genesis. Um, first and foremost, well, let's just let's break this up. Uh, you divide the book of Genesis into ten Toledoth, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Toledoth formulas. Toledoth, long old sound, Toledoth. Toledoth, formulas. Uh, would you describe the Toledoth formula for our listeners? Sure. It, it's become a formula just simply because uh, it, it's repeated over and over and over. So uh, scholars have just called it a formula, but it's not a formula per se. But it's a translation of a word. The word toledoth in Hebrew uh, is translated into English. These are the generations, meaning these are the um, the various people groups or the various uh, iterations of our clan, the various peoples. And so it comes across in English as these are the generations of. And so in the book of Genesis, there are 10 of these sections where uh, you can search it in the English Bible. Now, if you have a, a digital Bible, uh, something online, you can go and you can search. These are the generations in the book of Genesis. And you'll find about 10 of these where this phrase is used. And it always comes um, at a transitional period. Uh, this this phrase, uh, t uh, these are the generations, uh, there's 10 of them, which actually breaks the book up into 11 sections. The first um, uh, chapter and through chapter 2, verse 3, uh, you come across uh, this introduction. And then in, ch in verse 4 of chapter 2, uh, you find the first, quote-unquote, Toledoth formula, where it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And so in this transition period of one and two there, um, they're introducing, there's an introduction, say, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the introduction of the book, and the introduction of the world, and that sort of thing. And then it says, and these are the heavens, the, the, these are the generations of, or this is the Toledoth of the heavens and the earth. So it serves as a transit between the introduction to the book and to the remainder of the book. And these other Toledoth formulas uh, are... Uh, major characters in the book. Uh, basically, you have a total dose of Adam, of Noah, of the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Terah, of I 
Ishmael, of Isaac, of Esau, and of Jacob. And so these transitional periods, these toledoth uh, there, um, are those things that uh, uh, break up the book. And it seems like uh, most scholars seem to agree that and think that uh, these are family uh, stories, family histories from these particular people. And these people are the uh, like the major uh, patriarch or the key figure in that family line as they were telling this story. Now, you note uh, with, with the Toledoth formulas being family stories, how does this understanding help us to better understand and interpret the book of Genesis overall? Well, I think it helps us have a good um, skeleton for the outline of the book. Uh, when uh, Moses, you know, I'm, I hold to Mosaic authorship uh, of the Genesis and the most of the Pentateuch, but that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean he wrote, I uh, had to, be the originator of every word, right? Because Moses right. wasn't born in the book of Genesis. So how did Moses, how did God lead Moses to write uh, and organize the beginnings of time uh, before he existed? And so what I think is he collected and uh, uh, shaped the book of Genesis through these family stories. And so he told a, um, a somewhat linear story by the use of these family histories. Uh, kind of like what we would do if we were going to write a history today. You know, we we do our genealogies and such. And these Toledoth are basically genealogical uh, stories. And so he placed them together and he wove together by using these uh, historical telling about a time when he was not yet alive. And so, of course, all this is done through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But this, uh, we think that this is how Moses uh, compiled and wrote the book of Genesis. So it gives us a good skeleton, a good outline that we can see how Moses shaped and wrote this book of Genesis. Amen. And I agree with you wholeheartedly that uh, I, I also believe that Moses wrote the the vast majority of the first five books, the Pentateuch of the, of the Scriptures. Yes. Well, um, what is what would you say is the greatest challenge? in interpreting the book of Genesis. Obviously, there's a lot of controversy people get into the first few chapters of the gen- of the book of Genesis, but what, what do you think is the greatest challenge in interpreting this book? Well, I think you just alluded to the, the most difficult part. The book itself is not difficult in Hebrew uh, to translate. There are a few issues, translational issues, and there's a few interpretal, uh, interpretational uh, difficulties uh, based on the language, but primarily it centers around the historical value of the book. How do we see the book of Genesis? Is it truly history or is it not? And um, really this became a big issue uh, in the 1800s, late 1800s, 1900s, and um, it seems that the swell has been aimed at uh, as the book of Genesis not being historical. Um, the um, Early in the 1970s, there was a group of people uh, we now call the minimalists uh, who believe in a minimal history of the Old Testament, and that's why they got the term. And they started by attacking um, the patriarchs. It had already been, by the time of the 70s, uh, the um, well-housing school and the more liberal scholars, what we would call liberal scholars, uh, crit- well, probably be, to be fair, probably should say critical scholars, um, they had already um, dismissed 
as history. But then in the 70s, uh, there was a big push by these minimalists who also took it steps, many steps farther, but they began by attacking the patriarchs, Abraham. Uh, you know, Abraham's call, in the book of Genesis, Abraham was called in chapter 12. So uh, they started expanding this idea that there's no historical value to Genesis by attacking the patriarchs. And so then they dismissed the patriarchs as being historical um, because there's nothing extra-biblical about the patriarchs. You can't find anything about Isaac or Jacob or, or Esau extra-biblically. And uh, there's no writings about it. And they basically think that this was just uh, stories, family stories that may or may not have been histo historical and probably were not. And so these minimalists began attacking there. And then they expanded it to uh, Moses and the Israelites, and archaeology even uh, was used to attack, uh, attack this idea of the conquest. In the 60s, prior to the minimalists, in the 60s, there had been this attack by uh, some other critical, more critical scholars saying that uh, there was no conquest, and so therefore there probably was no exodus. And these minimalists then began to fill in the blank between uh, the first 11 chapters and the conquest, and they were saying then that that, that time frame was not um, historical either. And so their, their students, uh, for about 20, 25 years, this, this uh, argument waged in Old Testament studies, and not a lot of, be honest, not a lot of pushback from evangelicals, which is kind of sad. Uh, but until the early 2000s did uh, evangelicals respond in any kind of force. So from 74, early 70s until uh, about 2004, so nearly 30 years there, uh, there was this blank space where the minimalists were arguing that the Old Testament, Genesis, the patriarchs, Moses, uh, Joshua, those things were not historical. And it even got so far as up going all the way up to uh, beyond Solomon, uh, that David didn't exist really, that uh, Solomon um, didn't exist and his kingdom wasn't that vast. So that means Saul didn't exist, uh, Samuel didn't exist, the judges didn't exist, uh, which which means uh, all those uh, great characters in the book of Judges. And so uh, it got to a point where they were winning the day, so to speak, saying that it wasn't historical. So that's been the challenge in Genesis is to determine, is it historical? Uh, did it intend to be history? Uh, how do we interpret uh, the first 11 chapters? Are they real history? Are they meant to be real history? Or are they some sort of cosmological tale to explain that God did it, but, but they didn't intend time to be a component? So that's the key issue in Genesis, this historical nature, and how should we as, as believers see it, just as a tale uh, about God, that God did the creating but dismissed the historical value, or uh, how do we see it as a theological book, historical book? So that's the big interpretational issues surrounding Genesis. How might the conservative evangelical scholar respond to some of these minimalist, minimalists? Well, the cool thing about this whole debate about minimalism is uh, we've been—they've been able to—they've been backed down primarily through archaeology, and that's the cool thing about my 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 studies and um, my love, my passion of archaeology.
technology. Uh, back in the mid-90s, I want to say 93, Brian, uh, 93, 94, 93, uh, in the um, city of Dan in the north of uh, Israel, um, the archaeologists there were um, uh, digging and uh, ran across one afternoon as they were about to, to go home, they ran across this stone that had been used in a wall. It, it had been broken back in ancient times and had been used uh, as, a, as a piece in a wall, but they noticed that this stone had writing on it. So they uh, the, the next day they came and uh, took the, the stone out and they had it examined. Uh, a year or two later they found that the second piece to it and uh, when they they got the the trans um, excuse me when they got the, all the uh, writing um, uh, translated and figured out and deciphered they uh, determined that it mentioned the house of David this stone had been written uh, uh, maybe 150 years after David or something to that effect uh, 100 years uh, after David and um, uh, it was this um, king had come into Dan and had captured the city of Dan, and he is telling this tale. This this stone was part of what's called a steel or a, a plural bestile, this monument stone, a victory stone, telling about that he had come to Dan and he had defeated uh, this king of the city. And this king, he said, uh, well, he have defeated the king who is of the house of David. Wow. So for the first, yeah. So for the first time in the in the mid '90s, we have an actual writing inscription that uh, mentions David. This extra biblical. So um, the minimalists did all kinds of things to defend their position. Well, you know. And it, okay, so David existed. You know, they finally conceded that David existed, but they said he still must have been just a, 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 a leader of a small renegade band of people. Well, and that doesn't hold water because, uh, David, just think of this. If, if um, let's say an army, God forbid, but let's say an army came into the state of Alabama where I grew up, and I grew up in a small town. I'm talking about a small, small community. I was I was six miles, no, excuse me, 12 miles from the nearest post office six miles from the, the closest little town of anything called Sardis in the post office in Boaz. So Whitesboro is a little bitty community back in the backside of nowhere in Alabama, okay? So let's just keep that, you know, keep that in mind. But let's say an army, an invading army came to Alabama, and this king came through Alabama, and he made a raid through Alabama, and he wanted to brag to the rest of the world about all he had done in Alabama. And so you think of the major cities in Alabama, you think about Huntsville, Birmingham, and Mobile, and Montgomery. Those four are major cities, or the, the four major cities. So you would expect him, this king, if he raided Alabama and won that state, he would say something like, I destroyed Huntsville, I destroyed Birmingham, I destroyed Montgomery, and I destroyed Mobile. But why would he say, and also, oh, by the way, I also destroyed um, Whitesboro. Right. Whitesboro would mean nothing to him. So he wants to brag about the biggest. So this victory stele from Dan, he was boasting. And so he wants to bolster his position. And so by, by doing that, why would he mention the house of David if the house of David was nothing of any kind of significance? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> right. And so, you know, that doesn't make sense. So after the mid-'90s, uh, also, um, the Moabite stone mentions um, uh, 
David as well. That's another piece that came out uh, again in the 90s too, uh, or the, the um, translation of it did, came out in the 90s, um, and it mentions the house of David. And now they're doing lots of uh, excavations and research in the southern portion of Jerusalem on uh, what's called the um, the um, uh, the city of David, the southern section of Jerusalem there. And so um, they, uh, all the archaeologists find all sorts of things that bolster uh, the existence of David and so, or the existence of Jerusalem being a vibrant city during the time of David, during that time frame. And so, um, you know, minimalism has um, been backed down, has been trimmed around the edges way back down, but still, we get back to Genesis and... Um, Genesis, we say, okay, so David existed, uh, did Joshua exist, did the emergence of Israel. We do know archaeologically that Israel emerged during that time. This place called Israel, this, excuse me, this people called Israel emerged. But was there a conquest? Was there an exodus? Was there an Abraham? Those issues, those historical issues are the key. And so for evangelicals, we have to... Um, really decipher some evangelicals have gone uh, back to a position that um, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 weren't intended to be literal days literal creational days um, and then there's other evangelicals hold that they are a literal six day creation where God resting on the seventh so those that's a big debate uh, what's historical what was intended uh, by those chapters and then get to where it was, hey, did Abraham exist? Is that a historical telling? So you see, all around Genesis, this historical issue is the key. Uh, what's historical, what was intended to be historical. It's okay if it wasn't historical, it could be okay. Like, for instance, like the Psalms, okay? There's several Psalms that have no historical bearing whatsoever. They're just a song, okay? It's just right. a song, singing a song about a topic. If the Bible portrays it as a song, it's intended to be a song, it's not a big deal. When Jesus spoke parables, uh, quite often those parables were not real. They were stories that he was telling to make a point. Right. It's like uh, uh, the point is the issue, not the historicity of the story of those parables, right? right? And so if the Old Testament presents something as a story or as a song or as a poem, there's no problem with it not having historical content. However, if it presents it as history and it is not history, then we have an issue because the author is trying to trick us to thinking it is history. That makes sense? Absolutely. Well, and with Abraham and some of these individuals being nomadic as they were, could we anticipate to find anything, being as some of them traveled around as they did? Yeah, probably not, Brian. Um, they, uh, the, the, the movement of the people, it would be like finding a needle in uh, a million haystacks. And right. um, it, it would be hard to prove. So so what do we do as evangelicals? How do we, uh, one of the things you and I had talked about um, pre-phone call, pre-interview time, was uh, this idea of how does archaeology uh, verify the Bible or whatever. And and I, I've, get, I've given a lot of thought of that over the years because um, there's some scholars back, started back in the 60s or so, like 50s or 60s, were really adamant that archaeology could not prove the Bible. And, and it's, it's real. It's got a point, okay? So think about this. If 
if, if we could prove or some way, some way in the world we could prove that Abraham existed, okay? Let's prove that, let's say that we could actually prove that Abraham did move from Ur the Chaldees and he came into Canaan, okay? I, I don't know how you could prove that, but let's say you could on just right. a hypothetical for, for just a minute. Let's just say you could prove that. And so if you prove that, how do you prove that God told him to do that? Oh, that's a good point. You, you see, so theological truths, you, you can't prove them in historical methods. Right? So so what do we do? How do we get beyond that divide? Well, number one, we have to, uh, first of all, just... Uh, believe the Bible. Okay, you either believe the Bible or not. The Bible is what it is, says what it says. Uh, if it's God's Word, then it's true. Right. So it's a faith stance, number one. Okay, it's got to be a faith stance. And I grew up, uh, I was taught uh, to believe the Bible from Genesis to the Amen and Revelation. Um, <laughs> and I do. It's just my faith stance. I believe that. So, do I, first of all, you got to ask this question, answer the question, is it worth then trying to validate that? Well, I think so. I, I'm a historian. I love history and love the study of history. So, my thinking is this, is that we don't set out to prove the Bible. But when we run across things that shows validation, why not trumpet those things? Why not uh, voice those things? Why not celebrate those things? Amen. So, when you go to archaeology, we don't go to the field to try to prove anything. We go there to try to answer questions, okay? Right. What about this gate? What about, uh, I'm currently working uh, at Tel Gezer, uh, and Tel Gezer has this wonderful uh, water tunnel, this tunnel system, and it's near a city gate and a city wall. How do they work together? How does that fit together? What did the people do? How did they use it? What were the people thinking? What did the people worship? So you, you're not going to prove things. You're going to answer questions that are raised by uh, various uh, details. Well, you know, speak... Go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Just speaking of that, you know, I heard recently of a of an archaeological finding that had something to do pertaining to the Philistines. Uh, could you explain what that finding was and how it um, affects our understanding of the Philistines? Yeah, the Philistines are a group of people uh, collectively known as the Sea Peoples, and they came to uh, southwestern Palestine, uh, basically across the Mediterranean. Most of these folks, uh, it's not just one people group, it's, uh, that's why they call them Sea Peoples. We call them the Philistines, but um, uh, because basically the word comes from the Palestines or something like that, from the word root word for Palestine, uh, but anyway, it comes across as Philistines to us, and um, the, they're, they're basically from the North Mediterranean area, from the Aegean Sea area, all around there, and there was some sort of social upheaval uh, that happened in around the 13th, 14th century B.C., um, and we don't really know exactly what all happened, but there was some... Um, really the society just collapsed up there it seems and these people came across the Mediterranean and they settled uh, in southwestern Palestine and uh, in southwestern what we think of southwestern Israel and they tried to get into Egypt but the Egyptians kind of they were strong enough kicked them out and so they ended up settling in uh, that area of southwestern uh, Palestine um, we think about it as being Gaza today uh, in modern terms so they settled in those cities there and so recently um, it's been it's been uncovered for a while but it's just made the news lately on finds like this you kind of have to keep them hush hush but uh, they found a cemetery uh, in the city of Ashkelon and Dan Masters of Wheaton 
was is excavator there, and they found this huge cemetery. And I don't know all the details. I've not studied, hadn't read all the articles yet uh, about it. But they discovered this huge cemetery, and they think it's a Philistine cemetery because the city was so dedicated to the Philistines. Um, and from a time period where all the pottery, all the culture is uh, Philistine culture, Philistine pottery, the, the, the cemetery that he found is full of the same kind of items. So they're believing uh, that this cemetery is a total Philistine cemetery. So back in those days, they would bury eat way, way more than what we do today, but they would bury things with their, their dead uh, for the afterlife. And so all these findings, all these things that they're finding in the graves with these people will greatly help us understand the Philistine culture, uh, especially their religion and what they thought about the afterlife. So that'll help us as we read the stories of David. And, you know, uh, if you think about the late judges and anything about Saul and David, they fought against the Philistines. And so that people group interacted uh, in the historical books of the Bible. And so knowing more and more about them, then we'll turn and read the Bible. And as we read the Bible and it talks about these Philistine traits, Philistine cultures, then all of a sudden our world and our imagination can just be fuller and have a fuller understanding of what those texts are talking about. Amen. Well, Dr. Rudd, we actually, believe it or not, this has been a great conversation. We have about two or three minutes left. Um, what would you say to someone who, uh, you know, sometimes there's Christians out there, believers out there, who may avoid the Old Testament because they sometimes feel that it's too difficult to interpret. Uh, what would you say are the benefits in, a, in deeply studying both the Old Testament and even the Hebrew language? Yeah, uh, the Hebrew language just unlocks all the nuances of, of interpretation, and uh, I could speak for another 30 minutes on these things, but let's, let me say this, uh, Brian, I know we've got to hurry, uh, but the, without the Old Testament, understanding the Old Testament rightly, you can't rightly understand the New Testament. When Jesus uh, went to the synagogues, now Jesus is the one we serve, the one through whom we're saved, the one who shed his blood on the cross for us. Amen. We know we worship him. And the one that we worship went to the synagogue, and he picked up the scriptures, and he read, and he proclaimed himself from what? The New Testament? No, <laughs> the Old Testament. Right. He picked up the Bible. When Paul talked about the scriptures are profitable, what was he talking about? Not the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. So until we understand the Old Testament, we really don't fully understand the New. And um, that, those guys knew the Old Testament. Jesus knew and, te and taught from the Old Testament. The, all the writers knew and taught from the Old Testament. And all their ideas came from Old Testament ideas. Amen. Amen. So it's very important that we understand the Old Testament. Amen. Well, Dr. Roden, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. Uh, be sure to go pick up Dr. Roden's newest book, 30 Days to Genesis, a devotional commentary. You can find it on Amazon.com, and uh, so be sure to go pick you up your copy today. Again, Dr. Roden, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, for Dr. Roden, this is Brian Chilton, and you've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Thank you, Brian. Whether you're up all night or up with the sun, whether you're a weekend warrior or an everyday hero, whether you hail from homeschool or old school, whether you're hands-free or hands-on, 
Wherever you come from, wherever you're going, and for everything in between, Liberty University is the place for you. The nation's largest private nonprofit online educator. 